What specifically would you do that you aren't currently able to because your health condition is holding you back? Welcome to Balance Health Now podcast. I'm your certified health coach, Sydney Torres. I speak with other health and wellness warriors who share the same passion, wellness for all. We chat all things A to Z, providing holistic and science-based solutions to help you reclaim your health so you can live, feel, and transform into the best version of you. If you don't have your health, then what do you have? The first step is up to you. I release new episodes every Wednesday. Hope to see you inside. Hello and welcome to Balance Health Now podcast. In today's episode, we have a very special guest, Dr. Caroline Bazenko. Hi, Dr. Caroline. How are you? I'm great. Thank you. How are you? I'm doing well. I just want to say thank you so much for being here to bring awareness on the connection between our children's brains and anxiety. Before we get started talking about that, I just want to introduce you to everyone. Dr. Caroline is a psychologist, mother, public speaker, ADHD superhero. She has over 20 years helping kids and their families learn how to communicate so they can have better connections and more harmony within their home. Her mission is to help kids explore in how they develop emotionally and socially. So I would love to start off by hearing your story, how you got to where you are today. Well, it's a very long story. But in a nutshell, I mean, once I, I always knew I wanted to work with children and families, even when I was a teenager, I started working with kids and lots of different realms. I started working with autism and then ADHD, especially once I realized I had ADHD and my children had ADHD, but the anxiety piece kind of just through and through is pervasive everywhere and all people experience anxiety. And I think it was really through my own struggles and nobody helping me. You know, when I was a teenager, my parents put me on antidepressants and they, you know, had to go to counselors and nothing was effective. And I just started realizing there's got to be a way, right? There's got to be a way. You don't have to live with this anxiety. Uh, And then again, I started with my girls, took them to see counselors, and we just weren't seeing progress, even though in my own clinical work, I had started to, in my own journey, started to see that. And so I... That's why I've sort of shifted more, still working with families and anxiety, but I'm shifting more to the training and training other professionals that we can rewire the brain and we can really help kiddos. But it was really through, I think, my own struggles that kind of brought me to the anxiety world. Mm -hmm. And now with COVID, I mean, it's just exploded a million fold, really. Everything is so, like you just said, everything is so different. Like when I grew up as being a kid, being a teenager, it was a lot easier. It was a lot simpler. It was hanging out with my friends. 
um, we just like hung out at the mall or we hung out at somebody's house and there was a few kids in the neighborhood that had pools. So it's like, okay, let's go over to so-and-so's house and let's go to the pool. But now I'm a mother, I have a son, I have a daughter and just the things that they have to go through are a lot more difficult than what I had to experience. So if you can talk about how anxiety, um, how that affects the brains of children and in teenagers. Yeah, I, I think environment does have a lot to play because you're right. I actually just had this conversation the other day with someone where, you know, I was born. My mom literally put me as a newborn into one of those plastic tubs and then put it on the floor of the passenger side drivers, <laughs> you, you know, in her car and drove me home in that. And it was a different world. We would we would be playing outside. I think, you know, when we look at how far we traveled away from home, on average, it was over two kilometers. Now the average is one block, one street block is as far as our kids go. And so I think that there's a lot of sheltering and they don't have the same opportunities to build resilience and self-regulation and to learn that I'm in a really tricky situation. You know, I'm stuck up in a tree by myself. How do I get down? Or I'm lost. How do I get down? And in today's world, they never have the opportunities to figure those things out. And so anxiety, I mean, when we look at from an evolutionary perspective, it's there to protect us, right? That that amygdala part of our brain, it's the strongest, fastest, oldest part of the brain, the only part of the brain that's fully developed when we're born to protect us. And it was very adaptive when there were predators that could eat us, right? And now in today's society, there's so much more pressure. And I think you're right. There's so many more demands on our kids, just expectations. I mean, it was 50-50 if people went to university when I went to university. You know, my parents' generation, nobody did. I was the very first in my family. But now it's kind of an expectation. We've got this idea that you have to get top grades get into the top university to get the best job to therefore have the best life. And so there's all of these pressures and just everything, you know, they've got access to the media and social media, and there's just constant comparison. And so with all of these environmental pieces, we've got the nature born with the anxious brain, but everything else going on, our kids are so much more anxious. And unfortunately, the more anxious they are, the more sensitive they are to the information that's coming in, that amygdala filters everything. So they sort of get tunnel vision where they're only taking in the information that's going to support whatever it is that they're worried about. And so they're missing out. Their prefrontal cortex actually isn't able to do its job. And so that's the most important part of the brain for remembering things that we need to do, regulating our emotion. And we're seeing more and more kids with ADHD-like symptoms. A lot of times it's anxiety because that prefrontal cortex isn't able to work. It's shut down because of the anxiety. And so we actually see changes in the brain where there's not a lot of communication with that prefrontal cortex. And so that amygdala takes over. We see a lot more reactivity, impulsivity, avoidant behaviors. And, you know, just not wanting to persevere, put their necks out. And so there's this sort of cycle where they fall into this vicious cycle of because I'm not trying, I get this belief that I can't handle it. 
but I'm also not developing my brain the way I need to be to be able to go out there and try all of these different developmental tasks and, and taking risks, whether with learning or in social interactions or, or anything else that they're doing. And then of course they're not feeling confident because they don't have those experiences and then they feel more anxious. And so they kind of get caught in that, that trap. So we definitely see a lot of those changes happening in the brain. The dopamine's not working as great. Um, and you're, you're all about nutrition. We can get into gut health too, that contributes to that. I mean, most of our serotonin is actually in our gut. That's our feel good hormones, right? Like there's so many different pieces that I think just (laughs) the world we live in really contributes to a lot of this anxiety that they're experiencing. And then all the effects in the brain, it's just, it's really hard to get out of that rut. And you, um, I want to go back a little bit, just for people listening, you mentioned the word amygdala. Could you just kind of, for people out there listening, don't know what that is. Could you just kind of like maybe elaborate a little bit more on that? Yeah. So the amygdala, we actually have two in our brain. They're about the size and shape of an almond. And that's the emotional, I mean, there's more parts to the brain that's part of our emotional network, but that's really the one thing that we kind of talk about when we talk about our emotional brain, it's that amygdala. And so um, for anyone who, if you've ever watched that Disney movie, The Croods, it's cavemen, I think Nicolas Cage is the dad. Right, yeah. Um, At the beginning of the movie, he paints his hand red and he puts it on the wall of the cave and says, if you go outside alone, you die. And if you go out at night, you die. And soon their entire cave is covered with these red handprints. He was very, very anxious, but that helped them. They were the last of their kind to survive all of the things that could eat them and all of the dangers. And so the reason why they survived was because he was on the look lookout. He had a very strong amygdala. And so that's what that is. It's, it's kind of the watchdog of the brain looking out, looking out for all of the potential danger. And it's got to be fast. You know, if you're driving, well, you've probably never hit black ice being in California, but maybe if you hit black ice, you're swerving out of control, our prefrontal cortex, you know, if we were waiting for that to kick in, it'd be like, oh my gosh, I'm going 50 miles an hour. There's an oncoming truck. I could hit the meridian. I could turn it right. I could try to slam on my brakes. By the time we think through that, you know, we've crashed, we've smashed. Our amygdala helps us. It's that, you know, ninja sort of reaction to get into gear, get to safety. And then it's usually later on that we start thinking about what just happened and we start replaying and and we're processing what just happened. So that amygdala helps us react physically. It sends all of the messages out to the body. There is danger, react as quickly as possible. And so that's, that's what it does. It prompts the body to get ready for whatever the danger is. Um, And so (laughs) the problem is the brain can't tell the difference between a saber toothed tiger wanting to eat us and an upcoming test. The brain can't tell the difference. And so the body is still going to react the exact same way. And so if there's a saber tooth tiger, we're going to get ready to run away or to fight. Can't tell the difference that we just have a test. And so we're going to feel all of those big feels in our body. You know, the, the, the pounding chest, it's going to feel like we're having a heart attack or like we can't breathe or we can't swallow, or we're going to vomit, you know, physiologically, our, our body is responding the exact same way, which then becomes a problem. Cause then that's triggering the brain. See something really is 
dangerous here because we have all of these physiological reactions as well. So as parents, how do we kind of help our children kind of get out of that fight or flight, anxious, overwhelmment feelings? Um, kind of like, well, how do we help them without making like things worse? Well, first, let me get into some of those traps that make anxiety worse, because I think that helps just as a diving point into what we should be doing instead, because even I fall into some of these traps, you know, I'm an expert with everybody else's kids, but it's really easy when it's our own kids, because our own heartstrings are pulled, our own anxiety is pulled. So for example, I mean, there's so many, but for example, let's say your kiddo is climbing the tree and you're like, ah, you're a little too high, bud, come down or you're riding a little too fast on your bike, but slow down a little bit. Those messages are sending, I don't think you can handle it. So anxiety is you is the belief that I can't handle it. And so parents inadvertently send that message. You can't handle it by those eeks, ah, eat, watch out, right? Or jumping in and trying to fix things, you know, oh, come help. You know, they want to help decorate a cake. And then we go back after and we're trying to fix it up. We're sending these really subtle messages, reassuring our children. It's okay, but it's not a big deal. You can go in and I'll be, you know, I'll be watching your swimming lesson. I'll be there the whole time. Just, um, or you call me like sleepover, call me anytime and I'll come pick you up. You know, we're reassuring them. That's a problem. That's going to actually make their anxiety worse. Pretty much anything we do to make our kids feel better is going to make them feel worse. Answering their questions. Anxious kiddos will ask lots of questions after questions, answering those. When we jump in to help our kids, even though we're very well-intentioned, we're limiting their opportunity to cope with that anxiety in the first place and to be able to problem solve themselves. So what we need to be doing instead is becoming an emotion coach. So we are showing confidence. We have what's called mirror neurons in our brain, meaning it's, it's kind of like monkey see, monkey do. Literally, it came from a monkey saw a researcher eating and his eating part of his brains lit up, even though he wasn't eating the monkey was watching the researcher and his his brain lit up. So same thing, a kid might be happily, you know, riding his bike, the minute we're like, slow down, they now become scared just by looking at our reaction. But if we're confident, even if inside we're like, hey, but if we show them confidence, they're going to feel confident. So that's the first step is showing our confidence. We need to be able to allow them to be uncertain because anxiety wants predictability. So if they're constantly asking questions, who's going to be there? What time are you coming home? Um, you know, all, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know when the fire bell is going to be. I don't know what time I'm going to be home. I don't know who's going to be there. There's got to be some uncertainty. We have to allow our kids to feel uncomfortable. And I think that we try to protect them so they don't feel all these feelings, but in doing so, they never learn how to cope with them. So, you know, the big question I often ask parents is what are you doing that you wouldn't be doing if your child wasn't anxious? Would you be allowing them to have a nightlight on? Would you be sleeping with them? Would you be ordering their pizza for them? You know, if you go out for a restaurant or their Starbucks drink, you know, what are you doing for your kiddo that they could be doing for themselves? And so that's kind of the starting point is to stop doing those things. 
stop accommodating the anxiety. We're doing the anxiety for them. We're making, you know, that anxiety stronger. It's really enabling. That's what we're doing. And so it's, you know, it can be overwhelming when we look at everything. Oh my gosh, I do that. And I do this and I do that. You know, I walk them to the school and I give them one more hug and one more kiss and it turns into four kisses. And then all of a sudden, you know, we've got this OCD sort of routine. So it's really about looking, you know, even if you just start with one thing that you're doing because of anxiety and just, you stop doing it, you stop accommodating it and showing confidence in your kiddo. You've got this. Um, there is, I mean, we have to validate their feelings still, you know, of course you feel anxious. That makes sense. I'd be nervous too, going and doing a presentation in front of everyone or meeting a new friend or starting a new class. Of course you feel nervous. That's normal. So what are you going to do? How are you going to handle it? We're going to ask them questions instead of telling them or trying to reassure them. Those are kind of the starting points for parents. And I'm, I'm so glad that you bring this point up. Um, I like how you said, uh, as parents, we kind of have to be the emotional coach because I have fallen in that trap so, so many times because like you said, we do want to protect our children. And, you know, when they're trying something new, like for instance, you know, like my son was learning how to ride a bike and, you know, at first, like, I'm, I'm like right there holding the back of the bike and the front of the bike, you know, until he gets his balance. And then it was just kind of like so nerve wracking for me to literally let go and just yeah. like trying to keep like that positive, calm mother face on. You're right. When we, as parents, when we do, you know, kind of like, we kind of like project kind of in a way onto our kids and they could subtly pick up on that and that can contribute to their anxiety. So just remembering, let me just take a step back and just let them kind of figure things out because I'm guilty of that too. Like, oh, let me do it for you. Let me do it for you. Yeah. But you know, I'm glad sometimes my kids are like, especially with my daughter, she's like, no mom, you know what? I've got this. You've showed me once, I can figure the rest out. If I need your help, I'll, I'll call you. That's awesome. And yeah, and it's just like really letting go is just yeah. the hardest thing. And like you said, it's just, if we can just take those little, little steps, maybe like one thing each day. And if that's too much, just maybe one thing a week and then just gradually, gradually give them more like kind of like that independence. Exactly. Yeah. That's what we're doing is building that independence because the brain, I mean, it's set up to be anxious. It wants you to stay at home in bed under your blankets all day long. Cause that's where you're safe. Right. And it's usually when we're happy, we let our guards down and that's when danger happens. That's when we're going to get eaten. Right. So our brain wants to be anxious all the time, but <laughs> you know, we, they'll never learn to be independent. And so that's going to be important for so many different things. It's not just about anxiety, it's managing all emotions. So it's stretching them beyond their comfort. And, and it's okay. You know, if we do get nervous, it is contagious. So we do got to be careful, but we can own up to our own anxieties. And I think modeling that too. Oh man, you know, I, I had a big presentation today. I was really nervous. Right. And, and being able to talk about those things for ourselves, because I think I I remember one 
day, I mean, this was years ago. My daughter was like, why are you so brave? Like you're not scared of anything. And I'm like, oh my gosh, kid. Like, why do you think that I'm scared of everything? I'm nervous, you know, trying new things and, you know, seeing new people. And and they just have this belief that I'm the only one who's scared. Everybody else is so brave. And so I think that's really important that we're talking about those things and, and modeling those things as well. Um, If you could just kind of talk about like the different regions of the brain that could kind of contribute to anxiety. Yeah, I mean, I could get really technical. I won't do that because I think I'll bore everybody. Um, So there's different pathways. So the first pathway, obviously, is the amygdala, the emotional network that I've kind of talked about. And that's when we're looking out for danger. But our prefrontal cortex can also contribute to anxiety. That's our thoughts. That's our rumination. You know, and, and what ends up happening is we spin our wheels, you know, so if you're trying to plan something or you're getting stressed out about things that you need to do, for example, what ends up happening is our prefrontal cortex, it starts spinning its wheels, trying, what if this, what if that, what if that, and so we just get caught in this trap and it becomes overwhelmed. And that's when the amygdala piece, part of the brain takes over. Right. And then, you know, all of the blood rushes out of that prefrontal cortex, but those are kind of the two main pathways when there really is a danger that we see or we perceive, but just even the thinking of, of different sort of (laughs) thoughts that we might have, um, which can be really problematic. There was something I was going to say just around that prefrontal cortex where we can just get caught. Um, the thing that, you know, is really tricky is we believe that by thinking about it and problem solving, we're being productive, but it's kind of like a rocking chair. We're doing all of this motion, but we're not actually moving anywhere. And I remember doing a prenatal class I don't know if you ever took one, but with my first daughter, we took a prenatal class and we had to, one of the classes, we had to write out our birthing plan. And so on every, we had a little recipe card. And so every recipe card was, you know, what kind of music we want or what kind of massage you want, or if you wanted drugs like painkillers or not and positions and all of that. And we had, you know, a big stack of what we wanted, our perfect birthing plan. And then we came back at the end of the class and the nurse said, throw them up in the air. And and I remember, I remember everyone wanted a natural birth, no drugs, but I was the one, the only one who was like, tap me up the minute I get to the hospital, give me everything you got. I do not want to feel this birth, but I was the only one who didn't get drugs. After all of that, my labor just was so fast. Everybody else needed to get an epidural. I, I got nothing, even though I begged and pleaded, um, So it's funny, like, you know, it's, that's how life is. And with anxiety, it wants us to know exactly what's on every card and make sure that that plan follows exactly how we expected it to. And our prefrontal cortex, that's why we get caught in that trap of trying to make everything go perfectly, just as we predicted it to be. And that contributes to anxiety because life just does not work that way. And so that's another trap that we fall into, like, giving kids, I mean, this is a big one, warnings about, you know, if you've got a sensory sensitive kid who's anxious about the fire drill, for example, or lockdown drills or things like that, you know, they need to get those warnings, but we're actually making their anxiety worse because what happens in a real emergency, their prefrontal cortex is going to be so startled they're going to have no idea what to do. Right. So we just got to be careful of that, but you know, without boring everybody, those are kind of the two main pathways. There's lots of different pieces that do contribute to that. I've actually written a little, um, 
brain workbook for kids. I don't have one around here on me right now, but um, just to go through those different parts of the brain. But I mostly talk about the amygdala because that's what really helps them. And even my young adults, my teenagers and young, young adults, and I'll have them name their amygdala, name their anxiety so that we can talk about it like a third entity. Okay. When Susie shows up, you know, what stories is she going to spin? What conspiracy stories is she going to spin? What is she going to make you feel like in your body? Just so that, you know, we can name it, we can tame it. And so I focus more on that though. Kids do like learning about their amygdala and their prefrontal cortex. Um, the only one other piece of the brain that I probably should talk about is the hippocampus. So that's right next to our amygdala. It's our memory store. And so, you know, our amygdala is really powerful and it kind of controls that hippocampus, meaning we typically remember the things that make us scared, the biggest emotional reactions that we have, because that's right next to the amygdala. Those are the memories that we remember the strongest the most long lasting. And so our brain kind of makes us forget when we've been successful. And so if we're going to be working on building this independence and resilience and kiddos managing their anxiety, we should probably create some memory bridge. So that could be a jar, a bravery jar where we're putting in gems into the jar for every time they do something brave, or maybe a bravery journal where we're writing, you know, things that they've done that, that were brave into their journal, because that hippocampus is going to forget, we're going to forget our successes. And so we want to make sure they're constantly reminded of, Hey, remember you were terrified when you were learning to ride your bike. Remember, how did you do that? You know, you, and maybe for yourself too, as the parent, you know, not wanting to let go, how did I let him eventually go right on the bike? So having those memory bridges are going to be really important because the hippocampus really does that memory store holds on to the traumatic things, the scary things, the big emotional things. Is there any kind of like scientific way where we can like flip it or kind of like reprogram the brain where the brain can hold on to more of those happy, happier memories than the memories that aren't so good? I mean, certainly the go like reviewing your memory journal or bravery journal and going through, you know, videos and pictures, all of those things can be really helpful, but all of the work that I do is rewiring the brain. So, you know, there there's, I mean, a lot of steps to it. Mindfulness really is important because our amygdala, when it takes over, you know, our prefrontal cortex goes offline, we kind of go into autopilot. And so the way I often describe that, it's kind of like when you open up a bag of cookies or a bag of chips or something and you eat one, and then all of a sudden the whole bag is gone. And you're like, who ate my cookie? And it was you. Um, That's when we go into autopilot. We don't even realize it. And it's the same thing with anxiety. The amygdala takes us in, sucks us in, and we're ruminating. And so mindfulness is so important for us to be able to rewire the brain. We have to wake up when we're feeling anxious, right? And so lots of little moments throughout the day is going to be really important. Even just dropping into your body, you know, as a family can be like, okay, everybody, what does your right elbow feel like? Or tell me, you know, which hand feels warmer or more tingly right now. So that's the first step. There's more steps to it, but mindfulness is going to be really important. So they're getting out of their head into their body. What's going on for me right now. There is more to start realizing what is helpful is ruminating actually helpful is avoiding actually helpful. 
is reassuring actually helpful? When you wake up, you see those things aren't actually helpful. What feels best is when I do go stretch myself, put myself into an uncomfortable position. And then I'm like, yes, I did it. Or yes, I failed, but it wasn't as bad as I thought. We have to go out in there, but mindfulness is so important with acceptance, knowing I'm going to do it, even though I feel like I'm going to throw up. You know, the analogy that I like to give is that of a, the unwanted party guest, you know, so let's say you're having a huge party, your favorite band is going to be there, your favorite food, cake, you know, but there's this one person you don't, you do not want to have at your party because they are going to ruin it. They're going to be loud. They're going to eat your cake. They're going to open your presents. They're going to shout over the band, everything, right? But they show up, they show up at your house. So you've got two choices. One is to keep them out, but this is the kind of person who's not just going to go away. They're going to walk around your house, throw bricks at your house, have a megaphone, you know, yelling things. They're just going to be awful. So you might be successful keeping them out, but you're going to spend your whole two hours or your whole party trying to keep them out because the minute you let your guard down, they're going to come in. Right. Or you can just let them in right at the beginning. You can see them eating your cake and opening your presents. You can hear them yelling over the band, but you can still be with the people you love. You can still be with your friends. You can still be with your family. You can still listen to the band, even with the annoying racket in the back. You can still be there. And it's kind of like that with anxiety. We can try to push it away, push it away, push it away, but it's never going to go away. And now we've missed out on life or we just bring it in. Hello, anxiety, super annoying. Thanks for making me feel sick, but you know what? I'm still going to go hang out with my friends anyway. And that's the acceptance piece because we can't get rid of anxiety. We need to have it. It's important. We can't get rid of that amygdala if we're going to be safe when a real emergency comes up. But if we can get to that mindfulness place, realizing this unwanted guest has shown up, but hey, come along, whatever. There's nothing I can do about it anyways, but that's not going to stop me from not having my party. That's kind of where we need to get to. That's what's going to rewire the brain. That's what's going to get us out of those autopilot sort of habits and the, the reactive behaviors of avoidance and missing out on things and freaking out, whatever else we do, or going to shove our face to try to make ourselves feel better which never does, you know, afterwards we, we never feel better. So it's just being able to wake up and let our brain realize, Hey, this actually isn't working. I have a question. What are your thoughts about giving children medication for anxiety and depression? I'm all for medications for things that we actually need, like ADHD or schizophrenia, you know, those types of things. But when it comes to anxiety and depression, it's not the medication. And I worry about so many people relying on it because they're not changing their brain at all. They're not rewiring their brain. They actually become dependent on, I can't cope unless I'm taking this medication. And so, you know, I do have kids who will even smoke a joint before they come into session because they're like, Oh, Caroline's going to make me do hard stuff. I better smoke a joint. And then they're reinforcing this belief. I can't handle it. Therefore I have to smoke a joint, right. Or therefore I have to take my Xanax or whatever it is. 
And so it's, it becomes another crutch. It becomes another safety behavior. And so we really got to watch out for those. No, no, no. You can do it regardless of what state you're in. You can do it without a joint. You can do it without your medication. You can do this. You've got this. And that's the message that they need to learn. That's how they're going to rewire their brain. And you know what, I was going to ask you about the medication and I'm so glad you brought it up because I know, um, there's so many doctors out there that are just so quick to throw medication at every single problem. And that is not the answer. You're just treating like the surface and we have to get down to the root of the problem. And like you said, it's, getting a little bit uncomfortable, kind of like going out of that comfort zone. And you have the ability to do it. You have the ability to rewire your brain. You have the ability to choose every thought in every moment. And two parents, you know, and, and that's why I'm so glad, like, you are talking about this today, because there's a lot of parents out there that do not know. They will just accept what the doctor says. It's like, just because like, I appreciate every single doctor out there, but I think that as parents and as just people in general, we need to be our own advocates and we need to be aware and have that knowledge um, to make those decisions, you know, on behalf of our kids. So I'm just like, like I just said, I'm just so glad that you brought up the medication thing. And, you know, this will bring the awareness to parents like, oh, okay, well, maybe medication is not the best thing. Maybe there's, there's always different alternatives that we can choose. And I'm yeah, not discounting medication at all, because no, I, I, I do feel that there's a time and there's a place for it. But I feel that it's always best to have all your options in front of you. A hundred percent. And especially with anxiety, depression, I think there's just these outdated beliefs that, oh, there's a chemical imbalance. And so therefore we need to, you know, take medication. That's so outdated. It's not true. Um, I am a hundred percent for medications when needed, when, when you cannot implement the strategies and the interventions, but anxiety is the most treatable disorder out there. It is so easy. We just need to have the right knowledge, right? The right know-how get out of the traps that we're stuck in, not just our kids, but ourselves as parents or, our, you know, as adults, you know, the individuals. So yeah, it's, it's really about just finding those right tools. So I have one last question. Um, what is one thing that you would tell someone that they could do for their health? I think it is, and this is something that I pretty much tell everyone that I work with. It's just about being intentional every day. So you're only promised today. I think we, we focus on, I want to lose 20 pounds or, you know, I, I, I just want to be happy or we have these big, huge, broad goals, but it's hard day by day. And so it's setting the intention in the morning. What is your one intention for today is to, to, to live the life you want to lead. Maybe it's about health. Maybe it's, you know, physical health, emotional health. Maybe it's relationships. What is your one intention today? And then at the end of the day, bookend it, do a check-in. How did you live that intention? 
what got in the way? We've got a lot of time robbers, social media, or just other demands that we've got in our life. What got in the way? And what's one thing that you can tweak for tomorrow? So every day, it just takes 30 seconds to check in in the morning. What did you learn at the end of the day that you can improve for tomorrow? And I think bit by bit, no matter what it is that you're focusing on in life about well-being, that is going to help. That's going to snowball into the changes that you want to make. I like that. I like that a lot. Intention. It's, it's so powerful and yet so simple. And we all have 30 seconds. Right. Yeah. And it could be small. Even just my intention is to smile. The first time I see my kiddo, I'm going to smile and give them a big hug. It could just be something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, how can people find you if they want to work with you? Um, my website's probably the best, drcarolinebazanko.ca. Okay. And then um, I'm going to put all of Dr. Carolyn's information in the show notes. So if you feel like you have more questions or if you want to talk to her, please go to her website. And um, I'm sure you would just love to talk to people and help them out. Yeah, for sure. Um, well, thank you so much for, like I said, taking the time out of your day just to bring awareness to, um, to anxiety and to, to the brain. Well, it was great chatting. I love talking about this. Thanks for having me. Thank you.